Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. This is America's 360, and I'm your host, John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, the Woodrow Wilson Center. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and the Mexico Institute. And speaking of the Mexico Institute, we're joined by its director, Duncan Wood, who also happens to be one of the creators of America's 360. Duncan, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hi there, John. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So tell us about the idea. You know, the, the, the Wilson Center is not new to the Americas, but America's 360 is new to the Wilson Center. What was the concept? What were you thinking when you proposed this? You know, John, like a lot of people, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the way that we do things during this uh, coronavirus pandemic and uh, the kind of uh, products that I like to consume and the kind of activities in which I like to engage. And so this uh, really emerged as an idea when I began to think about the way that uh, I like to consume news about Latin America. And uh, I found that uh, the media coverage is so spotty here in the United States that we really do maybe get one or two Latin American stories per day that really hit the headlines. And it seemed to me that uh, you know, at the Wilson Center, we have this huge wealth of expertise, not just on the, uh, the permanent staff of the Wilson Center, but really with the, uh, the fellows and the consultants, the, the networks that we have throughout the region. And so it seemed to me that this was a golden opportunity to produce something new that people would want to, uh, to listen to uh, and to, uh, to, to bring into their, their, their daily lives. Um, and I thought that you know, the best way to do this was really to, to put it forward as a kind of a dialogue. And that's what I'm most excited about here is not just the conversation with you, John, you're fantastic, of course, but uh, the dialogue that we're going to have with our, with, uh, with our colleagues, because that's the way in which I think we can really get to the heart of a lot of the, uh, the most compelling issues in Latin America and the Americas in general today. And tell us about, you know, one of the things we're going to tap into over the course of this series is the deep regional expertise and the people that we have on the ground, whether they be Wilson alums or current global fellows or other contexts. Talk to us about that type of expertise that we can bring to bear. Well, it's a huge network of, uh, of people, and, uh, and we're, we're very fortunate to be able to count uh, uh, amongst our, our fellows and our network, uh, policymakers, former policymakers, representatives of the private sector, universities, think tanks, etc. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the great strengths of the, uh, of the Wilson Center has always been that we bring the world to Washington, um, and to a certain degree, we take Washington to the world. But uh, through this, uh, this particular recording, I think it's going to be a, a, a wonderful opportunity to bring in those voices from outside of Washington without having to bring them physically to Washington, but to bring them to a Washington audience and, of course, beyond Washington to the rest of the United States. America's 360 minus the jet fuel. Perfect. Thanks, Duncan. And we'll see you a little later for our roundtable discussion. Up next, we'll turn our attention to Argentina and its ongoing debt crisis. Is default inevitable? We'll find out just about Dateline Argentina. The nation's economy was on the brink of collapse even before the global pandemic struck. Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan joins us to discuss the latest. Benjamin, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, John. So as we sit here and record this program, we're less than a week from the default deadline. 
Uh, tell us about the latest. That's right. I mean, Argentina always seems to be on the verge of a financial crisis. Um, this time, it's arguably more severe than in the very recent past because of the amplifying of all the problems from the coronavirus. But as you point out, Argentina's debt crisis predates this pandemic. Um, Argentina on Friday is very likely to suffer its ninth default since independence. Um, it is trying desperately to renegotiate about $65 billion of debt with private bondholders. And so far, its offer has been roundly rejected. That's uh, 1816. Is that the date of independence? That's right. So nine, nine times since then. How does that stack up com comparatively around the world? Is Argentina unique to the default process? Not unique in having defaulted, but yes, unique in having defaulted this frequently. What's amazing is that Argentina can still borrow and borrow at significant sums enough to create these big debt overhangs and these debt crises. What happened was it had a pro-market president elected in late 2015, and the optimism and the size of the economy, it's the second biggest economy in South America, brought in huge amounts of money. And once again, Argentina overspent, wasn't able to put its budget in order, and ends up with this reckoning. So you, you and I default and we may find ourselves homeless. What happens when a nation defaults? What are the implications for Argentina? And, and you expect this to happen, is that correct? It, it seems likely. I mean, the negotiations will probably go down to the last minute. But again, as of now, Argentina is taking a pretty hard line. They've received the support from some interesting, though not all that relevant actors. That includes the Pope, a Nobel laureate economist, even the International Monetary Fund has stepped up and said, look, Argentina's debt is not sustainable and its private bondholders need to be more flexible. But again, they're looking out for their own interests. They say they've got contracts. It gets to your point. Argentina made an agreement to pay and now is unable to do so. It's hard to foreclose on Argentine assets. The last time around, after 2001, when they defaulted on $100 billion in debt, there was litigation that lasted for a very long time. And in fact, the creditors tried to seek Argentine assets wherever they could. Argentine, you know, the Argentine president was scared to travel on her plane certain places. An Argentine naval vessel was seized in Ghana. There were real issues related to that. But, but fundamentally, you're right. It's not like a, a personal bankruptcy. Really, the impact is that you can't borrow anymore. You, you no longer have access to international capital markets, and that's pretty difficult for a country that chronically overspends. So then what happens? Uh, look ahead. How, how do you dig out from something like this? It depends really on are you able to come to terms with bondholders. If we see a repeat of what we had the last time, you could go another decade where you're in the cold financially. And that's difficult. The last time around, Argentina was able to kind of muddle through the prices for its commodities like soy were very high. And Argentina was able to generate enough money to really sustain itself for quite a while. This time around, the international context is absolutely awful for Argentina. And so if Argentina finds itself unable to borrow, it already was in a financial crisis before this, so it doesn't have a lot of reserves, it has inflation over 40%, it would really be difficult to afford even its basic needs, let alone the kinds of investments you need to turn your economy around. Benjamin Gadan, director of the Wilson Center's Argentina Project. Thank you, Benjamin, for that very enlightening briefing. And we'll see you a little later for the roundtable. I'll be here, John. Okay, and when we return, the latest on the ongoing crisis in Venezuela, you're listening to America's 360. Dateline Venezuela. Nicolas Maduro clings to power while much of the world, including the United States, has recognized Juan Guaido as the nation's leader. Latin American program director Cindy Arnson joins us to help sort things out. Cindy, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks, John. 
So uh, what is the latest? I mean, this was a major global story for months, but then everything has taken a backseat to COVID-19, but events are still transpiring in Venezuela. Sure, and I think the latest is this attempted invasion um, by a small number of uh, Venezuelan exiles supported um, by security for firms, former U.S. Green Berets, um, that turned into a disaster a couple of, um, a couple of weeks ago. The um, um, people, including two U.S. citizens, were captured, a number of people killed. Um, dozens appear to be, uh, have taken, have been taken prisoner. And, you know, there um, are a lot of people drawing analogies to the failed Bay of Pigs, the invasion, the attempted invasion to unseat Castro in 1961. Um, it really is a disaster for the opposition, um, and it only serves to strengthen Maduro's hand um, at a time uh, of really calamitous decline in the economy um, and very drastic things happening on the public health front. Um, so it, it has also served to weaken the opposition because there are a number of documents that have been produced that um, are allegedly have Juan Guaido's initials on them, that he was approving this. This is someone who is inside Venezuela now, has been recognized by almost 60 countries as the interim president, um, but whose authority now is uh, severely questioned inside the country. Do we know with any certainty who's behind what, what Maduro is calling a, a coup attempt, uh, the, this attempted invasion, however you want to characterize it? Well, it's clear that there are um, a number of Venezuelan exiles led by a former member of the military who also happens to have been indicted by the United States for drug trafficking. Um, and people were attempting uh, to link up with these, um, uh, or at least consider a number of different options. Um, Secretary of State Pompeo has said that the United States had no direct involvement. Um, and what was really notable about that statement was the use of the word direct, because when you're that precise, it raises the question about whether there are other forms or even indirect. It's kind of hard to believe um, that U.S. intelligence didn't know about the invasion. It's not clear whether they did anything to try to discourage it. It really, in the way it was executed, turned into um, pretty much close to a suicide mission. Does the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, weaken or strengthen Maduro's hand? Well, so far, it has strengthened his hand to the extent that um, Venezuela was one of the first countries in Latin America to impose a very strict lockdown. The military and the police are patrolling the streets, um, and that is something that is always feared, making it very difficult for people to move around. They can leave home one at a time uh, to buy food or, or get other kinds of uh, provisions, um, but it certainly has uh, expanded the government's um, authoritarian control. At the same time, um, Venezuela is a public health disaster. It was a public health disaster even before the pandemic. Hospitals don't have medicine, they don't have running water, they don't have electricity. Um, these are cuts and, and shortages that have been documented um, by, by 
by journalists and, and by medical associations inside Venezuela for a long time. And so here comes COVID. Um, and of course, the lack of transparency that has characterized the Maduro government all along um, is just magnified um, in terms of the misinformation and, and, uh, and, and falsehoods that have been spread. And, and there are any number of cases of uh, Venezuelan journalists, um, healthcare workers uh, being arrested and otherwise harassed when they try to report what the real situation is um, on the COVID-19 front. So chronic conditions or chronic situations don't end until they uh, are pushed to an acute stage. What is it going to take to end this logjam? What, how long can this go on for Venezuela, this unresolved governing crisis? Well, this is the million-dollar question. One would have thought with the level of hyperinflation, which last year the IMF um, estimated would be a million percent. It didn't quite reach that, but I mean, it's just mind-boggling. We can't even imagine what that is. And the chronic shortages of food and medicine and basic necessities, one would think that um, that the government would have already been over, but the armed forces have remained loyal. Um, Venezuela has a number of international partners, Russia, Cuba, uh, Turkey, Iran, that have provided it with gasoline, with fuel, with um, you know short-term um, inputs of these things. It doesn't solve anything, but it allows the government to continue um, to survive. So the million-dollar question is, you know, when is this thing going to blow up? If it ever blows up, and whether it's just going to um, continue to uh, in, in its normal situation, which is ongoing and very profound um, economic, social, humanitarian decline. Thank you, Cindy, for that update. And we look forward to hearing more from you during the roundtable segment of today's program. When we return, we'll head north to Canada to learn about that country's China problem. Stick around. Dateline Canada. According to Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands, the country has what he calls a China problem. He joins us to explain. Chris, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks a lot, John. Well, the United States is Canada's number one trade partner by a huge margin, but China is Canada's second largest trading partner. And because Canada and China have been fighting over trade and other matters, Canada's gotten somewhat caught in the crossfire. It was December 2018 when Canada arrested the CFO of Huawei, the famous Chinese communications firm, on her way to Mexico. She was coming through Vancouver and the U.S. had a warrant ready and uh, Canada arrested her and she's been in extradition hearings ever since. China and Huawei have been hammering Canada on trade and other matters, punishing the country for holding, uh, holding their citizen uh, from Huawei. Which it, which it did at the U.S.'s request, correct? At the U.S.'s request, but the U.S. has simply filed for extradition. Uh, meanwhile, Canada's been taking serious punishment, first on the trade front. Uh, there have been bans on Canadian pork, Canadian soybeans, Canadian canola oil, all of which sell very well in China. But at the same time, uh, the U.S. has done a phase one deal to sort of climb down from some of the trade tensions with China, under which China would buy $250 billion worth of American goods. But because we've excluded technology and a number of other products, mostly what we're expecting China to buy from the United States are commodities, exactly what Canada also sells. So the Canadians are facing trade diversion from their number two trading partner, uh, 
to their number one trading partner, Canada's getting left out in the cold while it's still facing trade actions from China on, on a range of other products. Does Canada resent this move by the U.S.? Has, has the U.S. essentially left Canada holding the bag? Well, that's how a lot of Canadians feel. You know, the, one of the things that really gets Canadians wound up, China arrested two Canadian citizens in China and charged them with spying. Now, one of them is a former diplomat who was working for the International Crisis Group. Another, someone who was uh, a business person. Both of them have been in jail, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. Uh, they've been in Chinese jails for two years. They haven't had the opportunity to hear from, uh, in many cases, d their families. They're held incommunicado and not very nice conditions. By contrast, Meng Wanzhou, the Huawei CFO has been living in one of her many homes in Vancouver under relatively good conditions of house arrest. Uh, some time in Vancouver doesn't sound like the worst of conditions to spend your, your house arrest. Uh, but, uh, speaking of Wang uh, Wanzhou, uh, what, are the, what is the update on her extradition proceedings? Well, extradition is a slow process in Canada and in general it takes about two years. So as we come up to the end of 2020, we should be seeing that issue resolve itself, although you can never quite predict with the courts. And as for house arrest, I think most of us in both Canada and the U.S. are experiencing house arrest thanks yes. to coronavirus. Good point. Good point. So where do we go from here, Chris? Uh, what does uh, Canada need to do to uh, kiss and make up with China? Well, I think it's, it's not just making up with China. It's also getting the United States to realize that Canada has something to bring to the table. About 17% of the Canadian population, roughly 6 million Canadians, were born in Asia, a, great, a large majority of them from China itself. They speak Cantonese. A lot came over from uh, the British handover of Hong Kong as people got second passports. Hong Kong's important, too. There's an expectation or an estimate of roughly 360,000 dual passport holders living in Hong Kong. So as the situation in Hong Kong gets dire, many of those 360,000 people will make their way back to Canada uh, where they have every right to come. So Canada is in an interesting position with a great window on China, but not only is their suffering being ignored, their potential help the United States and be a key ally in dealing with China is also being ignored in the US. So in a way, Canada's China problem is getting the United States to realize how much they could be part of a China solution. Christopher Sands of the Wilson Sanders Canada Institute, thank you very much. We're going to ask you to stick around and also all of our listeners out there in podcast land, because we'll be right back with our roundtable and we'll take a look at America's, the America's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll be right back. Welcome back. During each episode of America's 360, our experts will connect the dots, exploring, as Woodrow Wilson put it during a 1913 speech, the innumerable ties that bind the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You've already heard from some of the members of our panel, Duncan Wood, Benjamin Gadan, Cindy Arnson, and Chris Sands. The fifth member of our team is the director of the Wilson Center's Brazil Institute, Ricardo Zuniga. And that's where we'll begin. Ricardo, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, John. Really, uh, thanks very much. I did a quick look before we began speaking at the latest numbers from Johns Hopkins and Worldometer on the, the COVID-19 uh, virus and the number of infections worldwide. Of the top 20 countries in the world, Brazil is number six. And among the Americas, it, it comes in second to the United States. Right. What's happening? Well, look, the COVID situation in Brazil has amazingly only gotten more complex in recent days. 
you're right, it's the sixth most affected country in the world, and that's with very significant undercounting. Right now, the U.S. model, uh, health models are predicting about 90,000 deaths in Brazil over the next uh, two months. And because of undercounting, it's not very clear that we'll, we'll know when that mark has been hit. It's been very clear that they have had very significant crises in cities like Manaus uh, and in some of the urban areas. But it's really only just beginning to take hold in, in uh, the population centers in Brazil, just as fall is arriving in the Southern Hemisphere. So uh, we don't really know yet uh, when we're going to see uh, what the actual course of COVID is going to be in Brazil, other than this expectation that it's going to be very intense. But I say it's gotten more complex. Uh, just this week, we've had, just in the last uh, day, we've had the resignation of the second health minister in a row in Brazil. Uh, and that happened over disagreement over the use of chloroquine as a treatment, which President Bolsonaro was pushing very heavily. And his health minister uh, found, like many health professionals in Brazil, were saying that it wasn't a proven treatment, that there were problems with that, uh, with that drug. In fact, it was a drug that had been used for malaria in Brazil. Doctors were familiar with it and concerned about its use in, the, in a malarial treatment. So you have um, a country that has experienced very serious turmoil in its response, uh, uh, the President Bolsonaro has been aggressively pushing to reopen the economy as soon as possible. The states are really handling this problem on their own, uh, and that set up a political conflict. So in some, some observers are uh, describing this as a situation like exists in the United States between uh, New York State and Governor Cuomo and, and the White House, the federal response versus the state response. There's a lot of analogs in Brazil to the situation there. The complicating factor is that President Bolsonaro is facing his own very serious political crisis uh, and is the, it looks right now like the charges of abuse of power by his former uh, Minister of Justice, Sergio, Sergio Moro, uh, have look, they look like they're going to be a long-term crisis for President Bolsonaro. So you have a situation where the real complexity for Brazil is it's going to have a combination of economic crisis, political crisis, and health crisis all at once. Uh, during a, a, at a time when we don't even know how the COVID pandemic is going to play out. But I think it's also important to understand that uh, whereas the situation in Brazil has gotten a lot of attention, uh, there are other situations in the region that are, are facing uh, similar uh, problems and similar crises. And uh, Duncan is with us. Uh, and I think that the situation in Mexico is one that certainly merits a lot of uh, attention as well. Duncan, what are you seeing there in a situation that's closer to home to the United States? Thanks, Ricardo. It's, it's a fascinating situation in Mexico, as of course it is in, in most countries. Um, and, uh, you know, first of all, I think I guess we have to give the disclaimer, right, that uh, very few countries have got it right on this. Very few governments have uh, really been successful in their attempts to contain uh, COVID-19. In Mexico, we had a, a really fascinating combination of factors, though. Um, first of all, the president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, or AMLO, um, you know, denied that this would be a problem for Mexico, as we saw in, in other countries. Then once the, the crisis hit, um, he, uh, he accepted it, but downplayed it. Then he recognized that uh, you know, there was going to be not just a public health crisis, but an economic crisis. And unlike the rest of the world, Andres Manuel has come forward and said that he doesn't want to unleash the full budgetary power of the Mexican government. And he's been incredibly tight-fisted with stimulus spending. And that's uh, brought about criticism from, from many, many quarters. At the same time as, uh, as that's been going on, 
you know, there's been a lot of questions about the reporting, the official reporting of uh, the number of, uh, of cases and deaths. And that, again, is a, is a common problem in, in many countries. Um, but it's become a, a topic of uh, particular international interest because a number of global media outlets have recently picked up on this story. And AMLO's response is that the international press is simply being unfair with him. And lastly, uh, the pandemic has really raised a, uh, a particularly thorny question in the relationship with the United States. And that is to do with the question of supply chain. Um, you know, a lot of Mexican factories are, are critical in the production of components for industries here in the United States. And when Mexican factories are closed, those components are not being manufactured and exported to the United States. So we've seen cases here in the US where factories have had to slow down production just simply because of a lack of these uh, essential inputs. And this has led to intense negotiations between the two countries um, to, uh, to try to bring uh, Mexico to a point where they're willing to reopen those factories in, uh, in Mexico, even though they're not essential for the Mexican people, they're essential for North America. Duncan mentioned that uh, it's hard to find examples of terrific responses to the pandemic. Uh, I'd, I'd be interested, Benjamin or, or Chris or Cynthia or Cindy, if you have any ideas of uh, best examples from the Americas, uh, who's, who's done the best job? I mean, one thing that I think is notable is that, you know, there was this idea that quarantines would, you know, cause economic harm, which they do, particularly to vulnerable populations, which are ample in Latin America with informal workers, folks living in informal settlements where social distancing is not possible. But actually what we've seen is that the governments that have taken the most aggressive public health measures have largely seen public approval improve. So you've seen, you know, AMLO, you've seen Bolsonaro, above all, really punished by voters for having taken a lackadaisical attitude toward this. And even though other economies may suffer in the short term greater harm from more strict measures, places like Peru, places like Argentina have seen presidents that were not all that popular, Argentina being a prime example, see their popularity go through the roof because of their aggressive public health measures. And I think that's been encouraging, even though not in all cases has it been successful from a public health standpoint. Peru is an example of that. Um, John, I think Canada is an interesting case and might be on the list of countries that have done better than most. Uh, partly, uh, that's they have a robust public health system and they've moved quickly. Uh, they have been willing to open the fiscal taps to provide money to try to manage this transition. And their infection rates, although they're getting closer to where the U.S. is, they're, um, they've been below average. In the last month, they've doubled to about 73,000 cases overall, and they have a little under 6,000 deaths, uh, which is bad, but is still, at, by and large, their performance has been okay. I think one of the challenges, though, for Canada is that they came into this crisis in relatively poor economic shape. They never really had that big boom that the U.S. has had in the last couple of years in terms of economic growth and employment. And so Canadians are feeling a bit you know, blah. And then in the last quarter of 2019, they actually started moving into negative territory. We're certain in the first quarter of 2020, they will be in negative territory. So that pushes them into a recession. Uh, economically, they're not in a great position to weather this, but so far the government's gotten high marks, especially because the federal government has all the health advice and the deep pockets for funding programs. The provinces are responsible for closing the economy, and many provincial leaders have found that they're, they're the ones who get the blame if things, if job market's tough or if even uh, public health service delivery isn't good, whereas Ottawa can float above and uh, look statesmanlike and generous. 
Um, for a while, it seemed that a, a, apart from the, um, the bump in, in public opinion, that the government of Chile was actually seeing real results. And this was because they were expanding testing and doing far more testing than other countries. Um, and yet we've seen that, uh, that the city of Santiago has again had to impose a lockdown, a harsh lockdown after hoping that it was going to ease um, the quarantine. So there is really, I think it's too early to say that there's anybody that's had great results. I think Panama also showed a much higher number of cases relative to the population precisely because they were doing more testing. And I think that's going to be the key uh, to coming out of this. And it's a capacity that um, that Latin American countries don't really have. The United States doesn't yet have it. Um, and we also see, as in, in advanced industrial countries, that the disproportionate impact is on the poor. It's, it's serving to magnify these longstanding inequalities that have been there for a long time. Yeah, if I can, uh, I'd like to jump in here. I think that uh, Cindy and, and Chris point to some really interesting uh, uh, factors here, and they're political factors. It's, uh, it's about winners and losers on the political stage from this, uh, from this pandemic. Um, and it's different in every country. Obviously, here in the United States, we've seen that uh, the president's popularity ratings have gone up, they've come down, depending on how much he appears on television talking about the, uh, the pandemic. But a lot of governors in the United States have seen their approval ratings go through the roof. Um, Chris talked about the situation in Canada. In Mexico, you've got a slightly different uh, situation where you've got uh, the president who is seeing his numbers being uh, impacted negatively. His approval rating is coming down over time from the pandemic. Um, and whilst other politicians don't see their approval ratings improving, they see this very much as an opportunity to take a stand against the president. So what we've seen is up in the north of the country in some central states, governors coming forward and basically protesting against the, uh, the federal government's uh, lack of an economic stimulus and saying that uh, they believe that there should be a review of the, uh, the fiscal pact uh, in Mexico so that they have greater freedoms to spend their money. And I think this, this raises a, a fascinating prospect for the future about what the impact of the pandemic is in terms of the cohesiveness of the uh, federations throughout the Americas. John, actually, I think that's a great point. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't Ricardo. Know, interrupt. No, this. Ricardo, yeah. go ahead, and then we'll go to Ben. So, the, to me, I think that, uh, you know, I think a lot of what this conversation is teeing up is the great unknown, which is that we're talking about first-order effects. All of us are talking about first-order effects with glimpses of second-order effects. Argentina being a great example of a country that was already on one trajectory, but... Just looking at Brazil, Brazil has instituted very strong macroeconomic responses and good emergency measures, but that has an end date. Uh, and just like other countries that are, particularly those that are already highly leveraged, you're talking about uh, a, a tremendous unknown about how public policy is going to deal with not only this massive economic shock, but also this massive dislocation in supply chains. Duncan touched on it. Uh, it's certainly impacting all countries that are doing trade with, uh, with China, and certainly in South America, there's uh, an incredible reliance on, on uh, exports to China as, as backbone of so many uh, economies. The reality is that we are only, I think now, beginning to imagine what those second order effects are going to look like in social terms, in terms of regional migration, in terms of what it's going to mean for a country like Venezuela that was already on the brink, uh, but also countries that seem to be doing relatively well. So, uh, you know, I think that we are in this initial phase of a very significant new period in the Americas. Uh, and the hard part is figuring out which of these trend lines 
are acute and episodic and which ones are going to stretch out over time? Mm, that is the big question. Benjamin Gaden. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uncertainties, Ricardo, you're right. But I think one thing is certain in that the long-term you know, prospects are grim for almost the entire region. Um, and unfortunately, I think that's even for the governments that we discussed that have seen a public approval boost from responsible and aggressive public health measures. You know, the region was suffering, you know, long-term decline in growth coming into 2020. And now all these leaders will be left with almost no resources to address the demands of the populations, which brought a lot of them out into the street to protest last year. And now governments, again, will have a major debt overhang and not able to you know, produce the improvements in public services and fight inequality that citizens are demanding. The IMF is already talking about another lost decade, a reference to the 1980s in Latin America. Um, and you know, that's not an encouraging assessment. Well, and it was only this week, John, that uh, Stephen Harper, the former Canadian Prime Minister, weighed in in the Wall Street Journal warning of exactly this, spend now, but you're going to have to shrink the size of government later. Interestingly, the Trudeau government, the current government, has taken a slightly different approach. You know, they, they are hoping that this year they might be able to get a seat on the United Nations Security Council, one of the rotating seats. And the approach that they have taken has been to actually start reaching out to countries in the Caribbean, Central America, talking to them a little bit about whether Canada could provide aid in response to COVID, uh, testing assistance and some perhaps some development assistance to help those countries get through. It's all in the timing. And reaching out to countries now generously could make a big difference for Canada's hopes. Duncan Wood. Yeah, um, you know, I think this is, is one of the most important uh, immediate and, uh, and medium term issues that we're, that we're facing. The, the Mexican case, again, is, is really fascinating because uh, AMLO as president has been what we call in Mexico, muy codo. He's been very, uh, uh, he's been very tight with his money. He's, uh, he calls himself not just a, a fiscal conservative or fiscal um, hawk. He's, uh, he refers to Republican austerity. This is the idea that you're, you're saving money in order to defend the republic for the people, you see. And even with the, uh, the, um, the full impact of the crisis becoming clear, he's really refusing to open the purse strings. Now, in the short term, that is going to be uh, deeply criticized by a lot of people, and it may cause a lot of damage to the Mexican economy. However, it does mean that he has greater flexibility in terms of borrowing in the future. And Mexico's overall fiscal balance looks pretty good. Um, you know, that's, that's very, very unusual in today's world. So the fact that this is a man who's come into office and has kind of refused to, uh, uh, to, to spend a lot of money may well help Mexico in the long term. Ricardo. So, I mean, I think that's absolutely the case. And uh, I tease up another point and uh, playing off of what Chris mentioned regarding Canada and the Caribbean and reaching out. I think the other question that's before governments, before all of us, is whether uh, just as there's been some discussion of a refoundation of Bretton Woods and a refoundation of international uh, development structures, this seems like an important time to think about the multilateral structures in the Americas. Uh, PAHO's role has been uh, you know, important, criticized in some circles, but all has been seen as very important in terms of exchanging information in the early going. But really, what we're seeing is hints that uh, given the gravity of the situation, it probably pays to think in foundational terms about what needs to be done to deal with not just the situation of the moment, but all of those frailties revealed by the crisis in, in an acute way. There seems to be an opening here for leadership. So far, we haven't seen, even globally, 
a coordinated response. There have been a lot of criticism of President Trump and the United States that has traditionally in recent times played such a role. Uh, are there leaders out there in the Americas that could rise to the occasion? Because as Ricardo mentions, this isn't the end of this story. We're just in the warm-up in many ways. So far, I don't think you've seen uh, any particular president in Latin America taking a leadership role, but I think there's a key role for international, for regional institutions like the Inter-American Development Bank, the UN Commission on uh, Economic Commission on Latin America and the Caribbean that are coming out with very bold proposals for things like reducing the commodity dependence, export dependence of um, Latin American economies, of substituting the value chains in, in production, uh, and the successful model that Mexico has with the United States within the region so that they're depending less on China. Um, there's um, there's a, a sense that there may be an opportunity um, in all of this, but it's true that the, um, uh, the need for liquidity and the looking to international financial institutions like the IMF and the IDB and the World Bank is going to create an enormous debt overhang. And this is going to be a problem because um, eventually one hopes that governments and, and economies will recover, but they'll still have taken on enormous amounts of debt and, um, and taken on a very high debt to GDP ratio that is going to serve as a limitation on growth in the future. And recovery could be a decade away. Benjamin. I think it's a difficult moment for regional cohesion. There's just a lot of ideological cleavages right now in Latin America. If you look at the biggest economies, you know, the president of Mexico refuses to travel as far as I can tell. Certainly not interested in foreign policy to the extent he is. Duncan, you know more. It's, it's focused on the U.S. The Argentine president is, is more nationalistic, moving away from trade, moving away from even the Mercosur Customs Union and its free trade negotiations. The, you know, Brazilians are, are not very popular in a lot of the public policy measures, environmental and otherwise. Um, Ricardo, you can talk more about that, but it just strikes me as not a good regional alignment for coordination, despite the real need for it that I think Cindy and others are pointing out. I think that's absolutely right, um, Ben. And uh, what I'm seeing is that uh, there are very few examples of good political leadership at this point in time, or effective political leadership. I think the leadership is gonna come from somewhere else. I think that we're actually seeing that, uh, you know, there's folks in the private sector uh, who are taking a leading role in some countries. Um, I think we're seeing that obviously, uh, uh, the importance of, uh, of research and development of, of new uh, treatments and vaccines is obviously going to be a huge issue globally. Um, but we're also seeing a space here uh, for uh, new kinds of opposition, whether or not it is uh, uh, from civil society or new political parties, um, whether we see a new wave of, uh, of radical politics in Latin America. You know, populism always does well under these circumstances. And it may be that, in fact, we're going to see swings away from the incumbents in so many different countries as people feel dissatisfied with the, uh, the lack of leadership. Any final thoughts? We're about to wrap things up for this first installment of America's 360. Wanna see, I don't wanna leave anything on the table if anyone has anything else to add for this segment. Okay, well then that's a wrap. Thank you. I want to thank Cindy, Ricardo, Benjamin, Chris, and Duncan for their contributions throughout the program. Thanks to you for joining us. And we look forward to hearing more from all of our experts in future episodes on Till Then. For all of us at the Wilson Center and at America's 360, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. 
America's 360 is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And for more information on a world of topics, issues, and ideas, please visit wilsoncenter.org. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.